This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week we're already looking ahead to the next round of elections, this time in Honduras. We'll have an in-depth analysis of the primary races there. And our main feature this week, the second part of our interview with Judy Gross, the wife of U.S. contractor Alan Gross, who remains imprisoned in Cuba. But first, Jordan Derry is here with this week's review of news from around Latin America. An earthquake killed 52 people on the Pacific coast of Guatemala earlier this week. The village of San Marcos suffered the most from the 7.4 magnitude earthquake, where 30 homes collapsed and a city street cracked open. Guatemalan President Otto Perez Molina spoke about the destruction. We are carefully helping people to recover from this dangerous situation and waiting to see if more than 52 people were killed. Authorities believe the quake trapped 15 people underground, and as many as 10,000 homes have been left uninhabitable. Cuban authorities arrested a group of dissidents who demanded freedom for activists and independent lawyers. Popular blogger Joanny Sanchez was among the 75 detained, but authorities released her late Thursday. The group gathered outside of a police station in Havana to call for the immediate release of more than a dozen activists, some of whom were imprisoned for criticizing the government. Recent reports show the Castro government has a zero-tolerance policy for requests for freedom and democracy. Protesters in Paraguay marched against a proposal to repatriate the remains of the nation's former military ruler. The relatives of General Alfredo Strassner want his body returned to Paraguay in honor of his 100th birthday this month. Strassner died in 2006 and is buried in Brazil, where he fled after a coup that overthrew his regime in 1989. Activists opposed the return of Strassner's body because he ordered the executions of about 400 people and falsely imprisoned more than 20,000 during his 35-year rule. Puerto Ricans voted in favor of becoming the 51st state of the U.S. this week. Almost 54% of voters supported changing Puerto Rico's relationship with the U.S. on the referendum. Some political analysts are skeptical of the result, citing that a third of the ballots left the question blank. President Barack Obama said he would respect the vote but Congress would have to approve the measure for Puerto Rico to obtain statehood. If the island became a state, Puerto Ricans could vote in the U.S. elections, but would also have to pay federal taxes. The European Union settled a 20-year debate with 10 Latin American countries over a trade of bananas. The parties signed an agreement to officially end the eight separate World Trade Organization cases. This follows a European Union agreement made in 2009 to gradually reduce tariffs on Latin American bananas. Latin banana exporters had long protested tariffs designed to protect farmers in former European colonies throughout Africa and the Caribbean. World Trade Organization head Pascal LeMay called the settlement a truly historical moment. For Latin Pulse, I'm Jordan Derry. This week we feature the second part of our interview with Judy Gross, the wife of Alan Gross. As some listeners may recall, Gross was convicted by a Cuban court after he was caught with sophisticated electronics equipment. The Cubans said the equipment was to aid dissident groups. Gross was working for the U.S. Agency for International Development, USAID. However, he said he was simply trying to give Cuba's Jewish community better access to the Internet. 
The Cubans have proposed swapping Gross for a group of Cuban spies imprisoned in the U.S. called the Cuban Five. One of the key recent developments in this story is the suspicion that Gross may have cancer, and his wife wants Cuban officials to give him a more thorough medical examination. Here now is the second part of our interview with Gross's wife Judy and attorney Jared Genser, recorded in Genser's offices in Washington, D.C. The, the Cubans uh, had urged the United States to demonstrate a humanitarian impulse with respect to one of the Cuban five, Rene Gonzalez, whose uh, brother was dying of cancer. Uh, and the United States uh, court uh, enabled him to leave the United States to go to visit his dying, uh, his dying brother. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, the Cuban courts have been unwilling to issue any ruling of any kind. They're, of course, not independent or impartial, but they have been willing to issue a ruling of any kind on Alan's request to see, uh, to be able to travel to the United States to see his dying mother. Um, and again, I just think that at the end of the day, um, this case, particularly as it is prolonged and as Alan's health deteriorates, um, is a blot on, uh, on the message that Cuba wants to be portraying to the world about how it is as a, uh, as a country. I will add to that that the Cubans' response to his request was that they will fly his mother to Cuba. This is a woman who's 90, is on chemotherapy, has horrible side effects, including vertigo. She could not get on a plane. And their answer was to fly a 90-year-old woman to Cuba. And so I'm, I'm struck by the fact that the Cubans don't seem to be getting this message from you folks about the cancer, about the health concerns, and that he has 12 more years left on this sentence. Um, if, if he truly has an untreated cancer, um, this sentence then changes from a 12-year sentence to a death sentence, mm -hmm. does it not? Absolutely. Well, and I would also add, and I think it's important to note, that you know, I strongly believe that Alan is wrongly imprisoned as a general matter, and I say that as an international human rights lawyer. Uh, who's only taken out cases where I believe my clients to be actually innocent of the charges against him. And at the end of the day, governments decide to release people who are arbitrarily detained when the costs substantially outweigh the benefits of detaining them. Um, and we are prepared to do whatever is necessary to publicly escalate pressure on the government of Cuba on this case. And I understand that some people will say, you know, you can't put pressure on the Cubans, they get very upset about it, they dig in their heels. That would be a reasonable argument for the first year or two that this case was ongoing. But now that we're at the three-year mark, now that his health is deteriorating and we are where we are, the Cubans have left us with absolutely no choice but to take this kind of an approach. And we're going to do everything humanly possible to put that pressure back on the government of Cuba. As an illustration, we filed Alan's case to a body at the United Nations called the UN Working Group on Arbitrary Detention. Um, and we've argued very strenuously that what Alan was doing in Cuba, which was connecting the Jewish community to the internet, falls squarely within a provision of international law uh, in a treaty that Cuba signed, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, um, which says that there's a right to freedom of expression, uh, and that right to freedom of expression includes the right to receive and impart information through whatever mediums you see fit. Um, and so what Allen was doing was actually conduct that's protected by a treaty that Cuba signed, and under their own constitution, they say that their international legal obligations trump their domestic legal obligations. And if you take a look at um, the, uh, the court opinion in Allen's case, uh, which is available at www.freeallengross.org, um, what you'll see is that the government of Cuba itself acknowledges that what it's doing is uh, imprisoning him because he was connecting the Jewish community to the internet. And they gave him this 15-year sentence for allegedly undermining the territorial sovereignty and integrity of Cuba, whatever that means. So it's not an espionage? No. Mm -mm. 
no, there's no charge. No, no, and you know, there's no espionage charge. And frankly, they didn't even prove their own case under their own domestic law. And by that, what I mean is, you know, if they're undermining sovereignty and integrity, I guess I would interpret that to mean that Allen was trying to overthrow their governmental system, which would be more than just merely connecting someone to a free internet. It would be saying, why don't you take a look at all these anti-Castro websites and, you know, the United States policy is right and yours is wrong and otherwise. But they didn't present any evidence that he did anything like that. Literally, the evidence, the extent of the evidence is he had all this equipment with him, which he declared when he came into the country uh, at customs and paid duties in some cases on, on that equipment. And he connected people to the internet. And that is what he was guilty of. And that's what the evidence was that was in court. And for that offense, in reality, he's being punished for the policies of the United States. Because in essence, they say, well, because the U.S. government has these policies that are anti-Cuba, as they describe it, therefore anyone who's an agent of the U.S. government is guilty of having those same views and those perspectives. So let me get this straight. The Cubans had the chance to seize this equipment as it came into the country, passed on that chance, let him go and show his connections with the, with the Jewish community, and then came in after the fact. Yes. Yeah, and, I, and by the way, I mean, Alan doesn't speak Spanish. Um, I have no doubt at all that, you know, he was about as obvious as obvious could be uh, in terms of the connections that he was making with people in the community. And, and it's quite clear from the court opinion that they had been following him around and seeing who he was talking to, and they were able to determine and ascertain all these kinds of discussions. It's not like he was, uh, you know, an intelligence officer with, uh, you know, extensive experience doing uh, undercover operations. I mean, this is a guy who's worked in, what, 40, 50 countries around the world on humanitarian projects exclusively and and is not, has never been and, and uh, never will be, I'm quite sure, you know, uh, engaged in any intelligence operations. So, you know, again, even President Castro has said that he doesn't believe Alan to have been a spy. Um, and so at the end of the day, when they're acknowledging that, and when you see what they say about what he was doing there, you have no choice but to conclude, as the Post noted, uh, what's really going on in this uh, situation. Judy, do you have something that you'd like to add to any of that? Yeah, I would like to go back just a bit to um, the United States working harder on Alan's case. I saw him uh, just a few weeks ago, and he said to me he feels absolutely deserted. He feels like he's been left in a foreign country to rot. He was there working on a government contract. The United States sent him to Cuba on a government contract, and they're finding it too difficult to sit down with the Cubans and get a dialogue started. And that's very disappointing to me and obviously to Al. As you point out, he has done other work for USAID, the U.S. Agency for International Development, before this point. Some people would question, why did USAID decide to put this mission forward? Was this something that important that they risked his, his life in doing this? I mean, look, obviously it's reasonable for people to look at the programs that USAID is operating and ask a reasonable question as to whether they should be implementing these kinds of programs. I think at the end of the day, that's not really a question that we're in a position to ask given what we're trying to do, which is to get him out of prison. But clearly other people can ask those questions and, and debate those on policy grounds as to how the U.S. government should spend the highly limited resource of U.S. Uh, government you know, funds. Um, let me follow up there. Some people have felt that some of the technology, the cell phone technology, could have been moved from the Jewish community to others who may have had 
intent with espionage. Do you feel that that was the case? I, from Look, I've had the opportunity to review the four reports that Alan prepared as well as the fifth report that was prepared for him after the contract was completed. And there's nothing in there to suggest that there was any intent to move this equipment anywhere uh, to any third or fourth or fifth location. Um, and... Uh, you know, and again, you know, I believe very squarely that what Alan was trying to do down there was what he said he was trying to do, which is to connect the Jewish community to the Internet. But sure, I mean, the Cubans could come up with all these kinds of claims, so could others as well. But at the end of the day, that wasn't what he was convicted of. That's not what the court judgment said. The court judgment uh, didn't, uh, didn't say, well, it was connected here so that what they really want to do is connected here and here and here. Now, they did say that it was, you know, accessible by third parties who had the password. But they didn't point to any third parties that Alan was intending to be able to provide access to the internet to, and they, you know, were speculative in essence about what might happen uh, with the access to the internet. Of course, if you have access to the internet, you can access it. You know, you can anyone who has the password can access it. But I mean, again, there's no evidence that was presented in the court as to, you know, any intent for third parties to be able to access it or to what end that might be put. Anything else that? either of you would like to add? I guess I would add that to your listeners that um, they write to their congressmen, their senators, um, and let them know that this is an important issue to them and in any way that they could intervene, that would be very useful. And I would just lastly say that people can uh, go to bring uh, bringallenhome.org uh, on the web. Um, they can write messages to Alan, which we actually can get delivered through the monthly visits of, uh, uh, of uh, U.S. consular officials, uh, and they can you know, stay tuned there for updates as to what's going on in the case and various actions that we'll be taking going forward to uh, ensure the government of Cuba understands that this case is not going to go away anytime soon until uh, they resolve it. Jared Genser and Judy Gross, thank you for joining us today on Latin Pulse. Thank you. Thanks for having us. I want to finish school and then go to college to be able to graduate and have the future my parents couldn't have because I know that going to college is the best thing I can do for my future. The words of a parent help to build the future of a child. The Hispanic Scholarship Fund has the information to help your kids go to college. Visit yourwordstoday.org or call 1-877-HSF-8711. Sponsored by the Hispanic Scholarship Fund and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. Later this month, Hondurans will go to the polls to select the slate of candidates for next year's presidential races in that Central American country. We asked Professor Dario Yuraki for his analysis of the primary races. Yuraki served in the government of Honduran President Manuel Zelaya in the Ministry of Culture at a level equivalent to a vice minister. He lost that position in the fallout from the 2009 coup that toppled Zelaya. Now, Yuraki teaches at Trinity College in Connecticut. We caught up with him during this program's recent trip to San Jose, Costa Rica. Here are selections from our on-site interview, beginning with his views of Honduras's left-wing Libre Party. What that party uh, decided to do, and it's legal, by the way, it's, it's, um, or basically to come to an agreement on who would be their candidate, and in this case, it is uh, Xiomara Castro de Celaya, who is President Zelaya's uh, wife. Now, some people, of course, see that as, well, this is just President Manuel Zelaya's uh, uh, basically running through his wife. Um, and there's truth to that 
in the sense that President Zelaya gained enormous popularity after the coup, given that he put his life on the line, he was exiled, and he was very popular. He was not so popular that everyone in Honduras loved him, but uh, he was very popular, and he remains very popular. Now, my view, uh, and keep in mind that I'm not a member of the party, of either parties, and I think it's important for your audience to know, even though I was a member of the government, I was... I was on loan. I'm an academic in the United States, a Honduran who lives in the United States and is a citizen of Honduras. And so, in my view, um, Xiomara Castro Zelaya, in the process of the coup and mobilizing in defense of uh, the government that had been ousted, which was universally recognized by virtually every government in the world, including the United States, for that matter, um, she did an extraordinary job in the aftermath of the coup and uh, hit the streets and began to, in my view, and I think not just in my view, I think that's, it's, I think it's pretty clear, uh, developed her own personality and political character, which doesn't mean that she, of course, doesn't have a relationship with her husband, and given who her husband was, a former president, that's, that's as if to somehow think that Hillary Clinton only speaks the, the voice and vision and politics of her husband. So, so Libre is, is, is going to nominate her because she's the only presidential candidate mm-hmm. on their ballot. Do you think the powers that be in Honduras are going to let that stand? You said it was legal. Uh-huh. Do you think that they might challenge that? Well, legal, they, can't, they haven't challenged it. Uh, now, well, whether they can, they'll do other things... Um, that I think is very, very vile, very, very possible. I Other mean, things, what things? Well, it could range from assassinations to um, playing all kinds of uh, of um, cards. For example, saying that Honduras can't be ruled by a woman. After all, this would be the first president, woman president in Honduras. Um, not only that, that she's being manipulated by her man. The Liberal Party is where President Zelaya started, although it seems that his party deserted him in this particular process. So so what are we going to see from the liberals? Do they do they have some candidates that we should be looking at? Well, yeah, well, they, yeah, they have two main candidates in the in their own primary. Uh, and one of them, his name is Yanis Rosenthal, who is the son of Jaime Rosenthal Oliva, who in turn is the son of Yankel Rosenthal. Uh, and I mention that because it's a very interesting... This is a big banking, publishing company family. Oh, well, not only that, though, what equally is interesting, I think, and is sometimes missed, is that uh, not only banking family, but as, as you know, the owner of one of the main newspapers in Honduras, a very influential newspaper, in fact. But I think what's equally important and, and too often miss on a, uh, and misinterpreted, I think, is that these are folks that are on the father's side are descendant from Romanian Jews who came to Honduras in the late, ni- late 1920s. And so their sensibilities with respect to a range of issues, including um, race, including gender, including the Honduran political system as such, is very peculiar in particular, even though, as you said, they they certainly one of the most important economic elites in Honduras. Um, and so the one of the candidates of the Liberal Party, uh, again, is the son of one of Jaime Rosenthal. Uh, his name is Yanni Rosenthal. He's a lawyer, uh, and he was also for 
couple of years, uh, coordinator of the, basically he was a chief of staff of President Zelaya, uh, and he has the the advantage, I think, given the situation in Honduras, of having opposed the coup from the Liberal Party that, as you said, abandoned the president, not only abandoned him, but, but stuck a knife in his back, in fact. So one thing is to be abandoned, quite, the, quite another is for you to be stabbed while, while you're being abandoned. Uh, and so that's one of the candidates. And, um, and the other candidate is, is uh, from a very, very traditional f- uh, Liberal Party family who also is descended from very prominent people. In this case, he's the son of a former president of Honduras, who's pre- President Ramon Villa Morales, who was president of Honduras from 1957, 1963. Um, his name is Mauricio Villeda. Mauricio Villeda Bermudez uh, is his full name. Uh, now, Mauricio Villeda Bermudez are about as different in the kinds of pedigrees that I was mentioning before. Mauricio Villeda Bermudez comes from a very Catholic, colonial origins family. Yanni Rosatan comes from Jewish, Romanian immigrants to Honduras in the 20th century. Villeda, uh, Mauricio Villeda Bermudez is not only from very traditional Catholic, but very much linked to the Opus Dei faction of, of, of Catholicism, which, if I don't know the extent to which your audience is familiar with this, but we're talking the very, very conservative wing of, of the Catholic Church. So let's talk about the Nationalist Party, which, which tends to be the more conservative party. The, the head of Congress is one of the, uh-huh. one of the candidates. Is, uh-huh. is that who we're going to see come through in, this, in the primaries? Yeah, well, they have they have three candidates, unlike the Liberal Party, which has basically two candidates. Uh, and the three candidates are very, very interesting in the sense of various transformations that what you call the, you know, basically has been seen as the Conservative Party. One of the candidates is Ricardo Alvarez uh, Arias, in fact. In fact, on his mother's side comes from the Liberal Party. But we won't get into that because that takes us back to the line of history. But Ricardo Álvarez, who's mayor of Tegucigalpa, who is the anointed uh, candidate of a former president of Honduras named Ricardo Maduro. Álvarez, like Ricardo Maduro, or really what in the United States might be seen as sort of in the tradition of Mitt Romney in the United States. The point is that they come from the same generation. Romney was born in 1947. Maduro was born in 1946. Well, Ricardo Álvarez, whom Maduro thinks should be the next president, comes from that very same tradition. Uh, so that candidate of the National Party does not come from that dictatorial sort of militarist. And I think it's a mistake, as some people on the left in Honduras try to paint him as sort of a fascist and all these other things. Uh, Ricardo Álvarez is not a fascist uh, and so forth. So that's one of the candidates. How about the other two? The other two, uh, one... Uh, named Miguel Pastor. Miguel Pastor is an, is an interesting character. He, his claim to be a member of the National Party is basically two. One, he did win the, he was mayor of Tegucigalpa um, in the 1990s for a while. But the question is how did he became candidate for mayor of Tegucigalpa in the 1990s? Well, he is married to 
the daughter of a former first lady of Honduras who was married to a dictator of Honduras named um, um, uh, Melgar, Juan Manuel Melgar Castro, who was a, a general in the Honduran military who came to power through a coup in 1975, who in turn was ousted himself. And the third candidate is actually the most unique of the National Party candidates, and his name is Juan, Erland, Juan Orlando Hernandez. And why is he unique? For a number of reasons. One is that he is, does not come from the wealthy uh, families like Ricardo Álvarez does. Ricardo Álvarez comes from a very traditional Tegucigalpa family. Now, Juan Orlando Hernández, who is the president of the Congress of Honduras, uh, is from one of the poorest departments of Honduras. But anyway, he's from the most indigenous part. Now, he's descended from, from colonial families, but poor colonial families. So he doesn't bring the pedigree of, he didn't go to the best schools of Honduras. Uh, he doesn't speak English, for example. And that's very important as cultural capital goes in, in the current globalized world that we... You have to be able to speak to the United States. Well, it, 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 in, a, in, a, in, in a sort of bilingual way, you catch subtleties that others do not. So thank you, Dario Yoraki, a professor at Trinity College in Connecticut, joining us today on Latin Pulse. Thank you for having me. And now, Latin American Perspectives with Peter Hakem. Governor Romney and his campaign advisors somehow failed to take note of this country's massive demographic shift. It was an error that probably cost them the election. Romney and other Republican presidential hopefuls not only ignored Latinos, but at times actively offended them. Romney himself suggested that undocumented immigrants deport themselves, an appalling insult to people who consider the United States their home. Obama, in contrast, cemented his huge support among Latinos when he approved a plan to end deporting individuals brought to the U.S. as juveniles. And no effort was spared to get Latinos now 10% of U.S. voters, to the polls. The president walked away with upwards of 72% of their vote, which turned out crucial in half a dozen or so battleground states. The election results focused unprecedented attention on the rapidly expanding Latino communities across the U.S. For the first time in decades, both Republicans and Democrats may be motivated to revamp U.S. immigration policy, which has long been among the most bitterly divisive issues in American politics. President Obama had signaled that immigration policy would be a high priority in a second term, and that intention should have been powerfully reinforced by the Latino turnout that assured his victory. Even Republicans who have relentlessly resisted immigration reform have come to understand that their party may soon become irrelevant unless they take Latino constituencies more seriously. No one should find it difficult to make the argument for fixing our broken immigration system. 
Besides making U.S. immigration laws more humane and respectful, a new policy approach would be a boon for the U.S. economy. Even today, migrants are filling crucial jobs, increasing the U.S. capacity for growth and helping to sustain the U.S. Social Security system. A sensible reform could multiply the economic contribution of Latinos and other immigrants many times over. And no other policy change would be more welcome among our nearest neighbors in Mexico, Central America, and the Caribbean. Peter Hakem's opinions are his own and do not necessarily represent the official views of this program. If you'd like to respond to his commentary, or if you'd like to comment on this week's program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud or on Facebook. You can write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's Latin Pulse, all one word, at gmx.com. Latin Pulse is available on the web and via iTunes. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then forward slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org, forward slash Latin Pulse. Travel support for this program was provided by the Center for Latin American and Latino Studies at American University. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse for our entire team. Associate producer Kurt Devine, announcer Victor Kilo, and writers Colin Campbell and Jordan Derry. I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchenos otra vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University's School of Communication with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music from Canary Productions and Bathtime Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2012 Las Rocas Productions. Music